invite you to turn with me in your Bibles for our Old Testament lesson this morning to Isaiah chapter 44. As you notice, we're actually not going to be in 2 Corinthians this morning. We won't be in 2 Corinthians for uh, several weeks. I've decided uh, for us to take a, a brief detour. Um, one of the things that we've seen over the past several months as we worked our way through 2 Corinthians is that Paul's emphasis has been on what the principal work of the Spirit is in the New Covenant. And it's not found in the things that we typically would expect it to be found in, but rather we find that the Spirit's work is found uh, uh, in the renewal of the heart. And so I'd like us to take several weeks to kind of step back, and before we proceed further in that letter, uh, to really hone in and contemplate that a little bit more. What does the Spirit's work look like in our hearts? And for that reason, we'll look at the fruit of the Spirit over the next eight or nine weeks. But this morning we look at our Old Testament lesson in Isaiah chapter 44, which foretells of the work of the Spirit in the latter days, a work that is evidenced by fruitfulness and godliness. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Do not fear. O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water out upon the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring, my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by the flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Now, if you'll turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 5, as Paul speaks of the work of the Spirit and likening the hearts of believers to uh, the mighty trees beside uh, flowing rivers. Again, using that imagery we even saw this morning from Psalm chapter 1 and elsewhere. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. We'll read through the end of the chapter. But I say, walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires or lusts of the flesh. For the desires of the, uh, of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the very things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So, so now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy and drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. This is God's word. Let us go before him in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the word uh, that you have given to us, that you have allowed in your providence to be sustained and passed down with full integrity and without error from generation to generation. As we consider your word, which is more durable uh, than the flowers of the field that fade, we ask that your Spirit would illuminate our hearts, that we might believe all the things you have called us to believe and do, and practice all the things you have called us to do and to practice by the power of your Spirit and in the name of your Son. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, I was driving on my way from here to Colorado and spent a good amount of time passing through the high desert, particularly spending a lot of time passing through the barren state of Utah. I think one of the most striking things that you'll find right away is that in the state of Utah, there are not many trees, at least the part of Utah that I was passing through. Of course, fortunately, there were at least some roadside food stands on occasion, um, Typically, uh, sundry types of jerky, uh, be it elk, buffalo, or jackalope, I guess. I don't know. I hear it's a real thing. I don't know. I'm a little skeptical, but I have a stuffed animal that says otherwise from a kid. Sometimes you'd see tomato stands. Sometimes you'd see stands giving different types of fruit-flavored desserts. But yet, none of them seem to offer what you might expect uh, them to offer, at least if you were to look around to see what is it that Utah has to offer to eat based off of the land. Tumbleweed pie, despite the great abundance of tumbleweed, you wouldn't find anything like that. There wouldn't be any type of thorned muffins that would use the brambles of a blackberry bush, nor would you find any deep-fried chaff. I think there's a good reason why you wouldn't see any of it. Nobody would ever want to eat garbage like that. Why would anybody in their right mind want to gorge themselves on thistles and thorns? Rather, what anybody would want to have if you passed by a fruit or dessert stand is you want marionberry pie or peach cobbler or something of actual value and taste. You don't want something that would hurt going down as you would uh, the, the prickly thorns of a thorn bush. And yet what we find in our passage this morning is this is the very contrast that Paul gives, and it's a contrast that we find throughout the rest of Scripture that uh, pivots and pits the, the, the works of the flesh over and against the work and the fruit of the Spirit. On the one hand, you see the deeds of the flesh being those very things that, as the psalmist says in uh, the first psalm, are like chaff that the wind drives away. And yet the fruit of the Spirit is something that is lasting and abiding, something that causes us to delight in the rich delicacies of what are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So I'd like us to consider a few things as we again consider what the work of the Spirit does as it enlivens and regenerates the heart of those who hope in Christ. Three things we'll consider. First, we'll consider the pattern of our walk in verses 16 to 18, and also reiterated in 25 and 26. Then we'll consider the works of the flesh in verses 19 to 21, and finally, the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 to 23. So the matter of walk, works, and fruit. Well, Paul writes to this particular church here, telling them to walk by the Spirit. In verse 25, he actually reiterates it by using this language of keep in step with the Spirit, actually a title that J.I. Packer used as, I think, what is one of his most important contributions and works uh, to the Christian faith. To keep in step with the Spirit evokes that image uh, of, of an army marching in step to the beat of a particular drum. It conjures up that imagery, uh, uh, imagery of, uh, uh, of, of an army unit marching in formation. It, there consists of certain rhythm and uniformity we see into how Christians are to walk and to conduct themselves. I think that image of marching is important because Paul now evokes the image of warfare, something that he brings to the front of our attention as this marching metaphor is reinforced. Paul makes it quite clear the church is at war, though in fact it's not a war that we would perhaps expect You watch the news today, and the media speaks of the so-called culture war. You speak to others, and you see uh, various tweets and Facebook announcements of people wanting uh, to call and and to evoke imagery, at the very least, uh, of a war against the state in certain ways, particularly over the ways in which people might be disgruntled by the politics of this day and age. And yet, as Paul writes here and elsewhere, our struggle, in fact, it's something that Paul says to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not a physical battle, it's not a physical war, but it is a real war nonetheless. Here we find that the battleground is not to be found uh, in the capital of the state or the seat of our federal government. Rather, Paul reminds believers that for the believer, the war exists primarily against spiritual powers in high places, beginning in the war over our own hearts and souls. Notice what Paul says here. He says, walk, or in other words, as he says later, keep in step with the Spirit, and you will not gratify the lusts of the flesh. Why is that the case? Why are we to march to the, to the, to the beat of the Spirit that he has begun to play in the ears of believers? And Paul continues to say, here's the reason, because the lusts of the flesh defy the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit run contrary to the lusts of the flesh. We find that these two sets of desires are two principles that are at war against one another, a war that is irreconcilable, and a war in which there is no common ground between the two. That the things that the Spirit loves... And the things that the sinful heart loves are two completely different things. 
no matter how similar they may look on the surface, Paul says at its root they are at odds. They are hostile enemies to one another where there is no hope for a truce or a ceasefire. It's a battle that wages for uh, the, uh, the, the battle for your affections. What is it that you love the most? What is it that you set your mind on? We have been reading uh, the book, uh, uh, Craig Troxell's With All Your Heart on Wednesday nights, and uh, this past Wednesday we talked about the mind of your heart. What are the very things that your mind contemplates and reasons and considers? What are the things that the affections of your heart long for? What are the things that your will chooses to do. We find that the principle for the person who has not been redeemed by uh, the blood of Christ and regenerated by the Spirit sets its mind on things that transgress the law of God. Which law will you delight in? Will you delight in the law of the Lord? As Psalm 1 says, that is the great delight of the righteous where you continue to delight in your own selfish desires and ambitions. Uh, the 5th century theologian Augustine says, man, uh, his heart is turned in on itself. It is a crooked rod where it's the object of its affections is no longer set on the Lord or the neighbor, but rather on fulfilling the great uh, I. Uh, fulfilling my own desires, whether or not somebody else benefits, is besides the point. 17th century Puritan John Owen puts it like this, because of this irreconcilable war, you need to be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. There is no third alternative. Sin cannot be reasoned with or pacified. You think of Siegfried and Roy uh, the, the great uh, magicians, where, remember a number of years ago, or I, I always get the two mixed up, but one of them, you know, they spent years playing with tigers, thinking they had the tigers tamed. It went on for years and years and years, and then what happens one day out of the blue, unsuspected, the tiger shows and reveals his true nature and mauled one of the men. Such is the nature of sin. You might think you have it under control. You might think you have it tamed, that this is something you can, like a, like a bad habit, like smoking, you just put away at the, at the drop of a hat. But that is not how sin operates. Sin lulls you into a false sense of security with its fleeting pleasures. And sin's pleasures are real. Scripture is very clear about that. But Scripture is also clear that those pleasures are, in fact, fleeting. They are, in, they are meant to entrap and ensnare you. And so Owen says this, John Owen, let not man think that he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. There is an irreconcilable war at stake, and the war is not between man and man. The war is between whether or not we will walk in the light of the Lord and the path that he has called his people to walk in pursuing righteousness, peace, and joy. And being a peacemaker, and mourning over one's sin, and being pure in heart, or in subjecting yourself and those around you to your own selfish ambitions and conceits. 
part of the matter that Paul is getting at in his letter to the church of Galatia is, and here comes the bad news, that man is dead in his trespasses and sins. He is enslaved to sin. He loves the things that he hates, and he hates the very thing that he loves. It's the great contradiction of human nature and life lived under the fall. Man is enslaved to things, though he may hate it. He could do nothing but sin. The unregenerate, those who have not been awakened by the Spirit's work, can only sin. The only options he can do is choose which type of sin he will commit today. It might be more heinous, it might be less, but either way, it is still sin. And yet, the central purpose to Paul's letter to the church of Galatia And here comes the great news, is that man has been delivered from sin by the work of Christ. That man's right standing before God does not consist in how how well he keeps the law and well he is able to kind of check off the Ten Commandments every day, going, well, I haven't murdered anybody today, so I guess I must be okay with God. Because we find that the the law of God extends not just to our outward actions, but our inner dispositions and affections. As we'll see when Paul talks about the works of the flesh, we'll get at in just a moment. Paul says, you think you're righteous. Well, if you think you are, by measuring yourself up against the law, that you're not looking at the law close enough. The law condemns, the law cannot save, and yet God in his mercy has opened up a path for sinners, a way whereby man can be made right with God, and that is by putting his hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is faith apart from the works of the law, as we considered last week in Romans chapter 4. It is the only way of salvation. But for man who puts his hope in Christ... That man has been given the Spirit, and the Spirit now begins to work in the heart of that person, awakening them to their own sin and misery, but also empowering them to keep in step with the Spirit, to learn to mean what it entails to, to walk the pattern that our Savior has called us to walk. And so what Paul is describing here in this passage is not how man can be delivered from sin. This is not a how-to manual, at least in this portion of the letter. Rather, what Paul is doing is describing the lifestyle of the one who has been liberated from sin's tyranny. In other words, what Paul is saying, and we need to understand this, Paul is not saying that your salvation is contingent upon how well you put these sins to death in your own heart. What he is saying is that if you have been regenerated by the Spirit, you will be at work putting sin to death. That sin that arises in your own heart. Here he maps out what it looks like to keep in step with the Spirit. What does it look like to to be a child of God? What are the things that a child of God does or is supposed to do, and what are the things that he does not do or is not supposed to do now that sin's power has been severed. And so in verses 19 to 21, Paul marks out the rhythms of the sinful heart. 
its impulses and operations. You see that here in verses 19 to 21 as he lists a number of deeds that characterize that man who is still under the curse of the law, that man who is still enslaved to his own corrupted desires. And so what are the distinguishing marks of the unregenerate? He describes here the pattern of the depraved heart, a defective reasoning, a corrupted will, perverted affections. What Paul is not giving here is uh, he is not giving a comprehensive list. Note what he says at the end of verse 21. He ends by saying, and things like these. Rather, what Paul is giving is a representative list of those very things that characterize the person who has not put their hope in Christ truly. But what we find it is a representative list. Notice that it includes actions in both word and deed, as he describes sexual immorality, sorcery, drunkenness, and orgies. But it doesn't simply stop at the outward actions. It also digs deeper to inner dispositions and patterns and affections of the heart, as he describes impurity, sensuality, and idolatry, which Paul describes elsewhere as covetousness, those very things that the heart longs for, uh, that, uh, those impulses that, that, that course through one's veins. And it is true that Paul spends quite a bit of time talking about various forms of sexual sin, but I think what's worth uh, teasing out here is that Paul actually gives greater emphasis on those sins that cause division, at least here in this passage, over half the list that he gives have to do with division and strife. Enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, and factions. That word for faction is the word uh, that we get uh, heresy from. What Paul is getting at here is that such divisive behavior does not characterize holiness. I think this is important for us to consider, because I think contrary to popular opinion you might see on the blogosphere is that some people equate being spiritual with being divisive and confrontational. And yet, Paul over and over again, without reverting to some type of happy, clappy version of kumbaya, there is a time to stand up for the truth but there is also a manner in which one stands up for the truth. And this is very important because in Ephesians 4, Paul says, be eager, be zealous to pursue and maintain the unity which has been purchased for you through the work of the Spirit. Strive to preserve that unity. What we find is that here is a church that has been Uh, disrupted by division. You read Galatians, and this is the very thing that Paul is having to address. And Paul is going such divisive, divisive behavior, it does not characterize holiness. Rather, it characterizes men and women who have declared war against the Spirit. Because the desires of the flesh run contrary to the desires of the, of the Spirit. They are contrary to one another. Paul's very clear. He says, don't be deceived. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. They are like, if we were to use the imagery of Psalm 1, they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. You read Job. Job speaks of the one who sows the wind. 
sows division, what is it that he reaps? He reaps the whirlwind. Do not be deceived, Paul will write later on in this chapter. A man will, in fact, reap what he sows. And that has to do in large part with respect to character and virtue. I think this is something that's very convicting because I think we all, when we look at this list, we recognize a little bit of ourselves in some or all of these sins. Perhaps to some degree it might frighten us. Where it exposes those dispositions in our own hearts that still need to put to death. Where we read this and you go, I'm so guilty, I have not kept in step with the Spirit's work. You see, keeping in step, being led by the Spirit is not, oh, where should I eat today, Wendy's or McDonald's? Let me pray for the, for the Spirit to move me. No, the leading of the Spirit has to do with the formation and cultivation of virtue in the heart. That as God has given us His law, He has now written it on the hearts of men, no longer on tablets of stone, as Paul writes to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians 3. Now, He has inscribed it on our hearts, enabling us to learn to walk in His ways. And yet we find uh, that the pattern of walking is much like a child learning to walk. Uh, You wouldn't expect a two-year-old to be able to walk perfectly to keep in step with an army or a regiment or even to run a marathon, and yet there are baby steps, and such is the pattern of the Christian life. We have now been adopted as children of God where the Spirit has been poured in our hearts whereby we can cry, Abba, Father, and now we learn to speak the language of God, so to speak to walk in the ways of God, though we stumble and fall, we find that we have a heavenly Father who is there to pick us up, but is calling and prodding us along to continue to walk the path of godliness. To remind us that we do still have these areas in our heart like, uh, like, like, uh, like a pus pocket that festers, that still needs to be reckoned with. And yet we are not left without hope because the Spirit has been given to enable us to reckon with this war that continues to wage in our hearts. Paul reminds us we cannot walk, we cannot keep in step with these sinful impulses, be it of sexual immorality or of divisive behavior. Rather, we are to march to the beat of a different drummer. And so in verses 22 and 20 to 24, Paul now shifts metaphors to describe the rhythm of those who march in step with the Spirit. Those who exhibit those, exhibit those virtues that show the Spirit has in fact been poured in our hearts. Right, if we can liken the, the works of the flesh to brambles and briars, then Paul here describes uh, those Spirit-wrought virtues as a precious fruit. Something that's delightful to eat. Something that is, in fact, edible. These qualities defy the corrupted actions and disposition of corrupted humanity. Rather than lust or malice, here it walks a new humanity in love. Rather, we find a people whose joy rests not on worldly achievements, but on the great fact that we have a Savior who is kind to sinners. 
Here we have descriptors of a peace that surpasses understanding, that does not retaliate when slandered or wounded. Here is a long-suffering that bears graciously under the sorrows and miseries of this life that does not uh, have a short fuse. The Spirit enables us to show kindness in the face of maliciousness, to do good to the wicked and to those who persecute us. It is a life that is marked by fidelity rather than infidelity. You watch the Oscars or the Emmys, and you look all around, and you look at all these celebrities. How many of them are on their fourth marriage? So many lives marked by infidelity, and yet these are the people that the world props up as models to emulate rather than lives of character and integrity. Here we find that those who are under the influence of the Spirit have lives that are qualified by gentleness, not harshness. Ones who are taught to exercise self-control rather than self-indulgence. We'll consider each of these in the coming weeks, but first, I think we must ask the question, when we uh, look even at the fruit of the Spirit and we look at our own hearts, we think, who could ever do such things? Who could ever measure up to such things? If you think, well, now I just have to try harder, again, you're missing the very basis for our right standing with God. It's not on the basis of works. Paul's not talking about the root of godliness. You must bear these things underneath the ground. He talks about that these things are fruit of godliness that evidence the fact that there is a good root that is planted in deep and rich soil. Hearts that are rooted in the knowledge of the grace of God that is found in the kindness of our Savior. but I think we are right to recognize that nobody is able to do these things unless they have been regenerated by the work of the Spirit. One whose sins have been washed away through faith in Christ, where sin no longer dominates the human heart, where sin's power has been shattered even if the presence continues to remain, as if the, the giant, if, if, if you were to liken sin uh, to a mighty oak tree, we find that the oak has been felled and uh, uh, it has been uprooted and yet there might still be weeds or the occasional facets that still have to be dealt with. The root of sin has been dealt with. But now we are called to cultivate hearts and lives of godliness. That's why Hebrews will say, do not let a root of bitterness spring up like a poisonous fruit. We're called to weed the garden of our own hearts. And yet we see also another contrast here, whereas Paul speaks of the divisive works, plural of the flesh. Here, Paul contrasts that with the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. Paul does not say the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace patience, and so on and so forth. So what Paul is not getting at is that, you know, love is like a banana, joy is an apple, uh, peace is, a, is a, a bushel of cherries, different types of fruit. 
Rather, Paul is talking about a single undivided fruit, that these qualities are qualities that are mutually uh, defining. They, they, they are attributes that help explain. It's like looking at various aspects of a jewel. What Paul is not getting at is he's not trying to lead you to suppose, to say, well, I, I'm able to love, but I'm not able to be patient. I'm bearing a lot of love fruit today, but I'm not bearing an awful lot of joy fruit today. As if you could have one without the other. What, what is love if it's, if it's not long-suffering and C.S. Lewis gives this great example in his book, The Four Loves, of, of the, uh, the mother who continues to do the laundry for her children. Uh, and I'm not saying if you do laundry for your grown kids, that's a bad thing, but Lewis is giving this example. You have the mother who's, who continues to do laundry for her grown children, even after they've gotten married and moved out of the house. And she continues to do the laundry and shows up to do it. And finally, one day, the grown kids go, Mom, we don't need you to do the laundry anymore. And then she flips out and says, after all I've done for you, Haven't you seen how much I love you? And then that great love becomes a great devil, as it were. Uh, Because here's a mother who thinks that she can love without being um, long-suffering. Here's a love that doesn't have to be kind. Rather, we find that love is characterized by joy and long-suffering and kindness. Here is a joy that is characterized by self-control rather than self-indulgence. You cannot understand what it means to love without being patient. You cannot exhibit joy without also exercising self-control, at least not in the way in which uh, we are intended to grow into these things. These are qualities that are mutually defining a long-suffering that is in kind, that is kind, rather than a long-suffering that is unbearable, where you have to remind everybody every day how patient you are with them and how passive-aggressive you can be in letting everybody know how long-suffering you've been with everyone. Here is a peace that does not consist in microaggressions, in giving somebody the silent treatment and claiming that is somehow peace. That is not peace, that is a stalemate. Rather, we have a real peace that is marked by kindness and goodness, long-suffering and faithfulness. And the list goes on and on and on. But we here see that the way in which the Spirit calls us to understand these qualities is that each of the other Uh, characteristics help us uh, uh, see it as one undivided whole. I think it again leads us to that question, who is sufficient to do such things? I think when we see what all is involved, we realize that we have such a long way to go. But this is why Paul is using this language of bearing fruit. Think of what Psalm 1 says. Again, Psalm 1 stands in the background of so much of this. It is the man who delights in the law of the Lord who will bear fruit when in due season. Any of you have ever tried, uh, or farmers who have planted a crop or uh, even a plant, you recognize that fruit bearing, it takes a long time. There's a pruning process that's involved. Sometimes, you know, uh, the, the strawberry might start off kind of sour, but eventually it grows and actually becomes sweet. Such is the nature of godliness in the hearts of believers. It is something that is to, uh, to grow in its quality and character over time to get better and better and better. To where we, we don't reach a point where we wake up one day and go, okay, finally I've arrived. I've learned what humility is. I don't need it anymore. 
This is something that continues to, 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 to bear fruit over the whole course of, the, of one's whole life. And the Lord is kind. Even when he prunes us, when that pruning hurts, he does that to remove those thistles and thorns from our own heart that we might bear more fruit. That's John chapter 15, when Jesus talks about abiding in him as a branch abides in the vine. And it drives home this integral point that Paul has gone at great lengths in 2 Corinthians to deal with. The point is this, that the Spirit's chief work does not consist in providing mystical experiences or euphoric highs, though one might have euphoric highs. It's not to denigrate those things. What we find is that the Spirit is not a genie given to us in a bottle to put in our back pocket to magically bestow upon you personal affluence or prosperity that you can whip him out in a moment's notice to name it and claim it, to speak in unknown or angelic languages, to take dominion over some facet of the political or cultural realm. Rather, we find that the proof that the Spirit is at work in our hearts consists in this, to cause you to grow in your love for the Lord and to love your neighbor as yourself. You read the prophets of old when they prophesy the great work of the Spirit that is to come under the new covenant, a work that has now been poured out on the church at Pentecost. It all points to this very thing. For the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with you and I will write my law in your hearts, not on tablets of stone, so that you might be enabled to walk in my ways." Those days are coming where I'll pour out my spirit, Isaiah 44, as we had read earlier, where your hearts will be likened to water falling upon a barren soil, where now, where there was once a desert, now a willow springs up and provides shade and comfort. Where you will be like the righteous who meditates and delights in God's law daily, you all be likened to that mighty oak that stands beside the stream with deep roots and rich fruit. Here we find that the work of the Spirit is neither mechanical nor magical. This is not a ten-step process. This is not a, a wave of the wand, and now all of your troubles and your struggles magically disappear. Rather, here is the great promise that if you abide in Christ, the Spirit will work in your hearts to bear, uh, to prune away those things that do not conform to the things that the Lord loves. But as you continue to abide in Christ, to delight in communion with Christ, the Spirit will be at work to make you look like Christ Himself. Being spiritual does not consist in secret knowledge or special gifts. Paul's emphasis and concern is always grace is more than gifts. Paul says prophecy is great. He writes this in 1 Corinthians. But I desire more earnestly that you would love. It is character, not charisma, that matters. On the last day when the human race stands before God, so many people say, Lord, didn't we, didn't we preach? Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we perform all these signs and wonders and do these, these massive spectacles in your name? The Lord's response will be, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. You've done all these outer works, but your heart was never renewed and washed by faith in Christ. And so the chief work of the Spirit consists in this, making us holy to the Lord. 
setting us apart, and then beginning to work in us a real righteousness. Yeah, as we've been declared to be righteous, so God also makes us righteous. It's not either or, it is both and. And here in verse 24, as Paul describes this ongoing lifelong process of putting indwelling sin to death, of being pruned, Paul compares that pruning to crucifixion. That it is in fact going to be painful and arduous. And yet we are called to crucify not merely those outward actions, but also our very passions and desires. These are things we do not do apart from the Spirit's work. We don't do these to merit a second blessing where the Spirit would be poured out on us. These are the very things that the Spirit does because He has been given freely to the one who puts His hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you struggle with sin, and I hope everybody goes, yeah, I struggle with sin. The solution is, it's not a quick fix, but a lifelong endeavor. Turn to Christ Put your hope in Him, and He promises He will give you all the resources available to help you grow in godliness through the Word, the sacraments, and prayer. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do ask that as You have set us apart as Your own precious vineyard, that You would prune our hearts, that we might bear fruit unto godliness with all humility and gentleness, seeking to love you with our whole hearts and our neighbor as ourselves. We ask that this would be a church that is characterized by its love for you, as you have commanded us to be, a people that loves one another. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.